3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming. We're doing things a bit differently on the show today as we say goodbye to 2021. Today we're going to take a look at some of our favourite stories, voices and guests from the last year. So stay tuned and let's get into it. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming. In 2021, the Thursday Breakfast crew conducted a series of interviews tracing the role of the arts in the gentrification and cultural history of Collingwood and Fitzroy. This was part of a collaborative project, Disorganizing, coordinated by Liquid Architecture, Bus Projects, and West Space. In our interviews, you'll hear from local activists, artists, urban planners, and historians, including Kucha Edwards, John Harding, Pora Bibi and Izzy Brown, Kelly and Spike, Libby Porter, Dr. Kate Shaw, and Karen Cummings. Stay tuned to 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and streaming at 3cr.org.au. For Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, this conversation includes the voices of and references Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have passed away. This is a conversation I had with Gugu Yelenji, Mariam Mann and playwright John Harding about his play The Dirty Mile, a 2008 production by Ilbidgeri Theatre Company. The Dirty Mile was a dramatised walking tour of Gertrude Street Fitzroy. Developed around sites of significance, the play told the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history of the area, tracing stories pre-invasion to the present day. We also spoke about John's time broadcasting and working as the Aboriginal Programming Coordinator at 3CR in the late 1980s. John is a Google Yalanji man, born and bred in Melbourne, with strong ties to the Fitzroy and Collingwood area. John began by introducing himself, his work, and his childhood growing up in suburbs across so-called Melbourne. My name's John Harding. Uh, I'm a playwright, director, poet, sometimes actor, uh, and done a lot of broadcasting, and um, uh, work in the arts, um, and currently just working in the philanthropic sector. Yeah, I... Um, I was born in Carlton and at the Women's Hospital in Carlton and one of the first uh, places that we we moved to after my birth was the Gore Street boarding houses. So there were a whole series of boarding houses, three-storey, they're still there, many of them are three-storey homes, but now they're obviously owned by wealthy people, but there used to be up to three or four families in one house and so they'd have a floor each and a shared kitchen and toilet. And so when I was a little baby, that's where we moved into and, um, yeah, she had a boarding house with, I think, two other families. So it was pretty rough and ready. 
and a lot of a lot of Aboriginal families shared uh, accommodation with migrant families. So we had Italians and Greeks um, who often were working in in suburbs like Albury and Northcote, um, you know, in shoe factories like Kelly's Marlow and on those kind of things, making all the you know doing all the essential work. Um, and um, a lot of them were living in you know the, the poorer poorer areas of Collingwood and Fitzroy at the time. We actually moved out. From there, uh, we mum was lucky enough to get a housing commission flat, and we moved to um, Port Melbourne, which is was called it's quite famous. It was called Ingalls Street Flat. We lived there for a few years, and then mum applied for a, a house in Port Melbourne. That was a housing commission. So we moved out of the flats, one of the few lucky ones, and we got a house in Port Melbourne, um, and then lived there in that house until I was ten, and then we moved to Lalo, um, and I went to Lalo Primary School when I was about ten or eleven. When I originally got in touch with you to talk about The Dirty Mile, it's a play set and performed in Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, and it was directed by Kylie Belling, written by you with Gary Foley, and it was developed originally from an idea by your sister, Lisa Belair. We spoke about that on the phone a few weeks ago when you were talking about the power and emotion of the opening night of The Dirty Mile, and I was wondering if you could maybe just take us back to that first performance. Yes, I mean, it was... For me, you know, when I think back, and I think I, I wrote it, so I knew what was coming. I knew what to expect in terms of the actors and the scenes. And yet, every time a new scene unfolded, you know, I, I was, I was, it was very emotional. I think it was emotional for everyone, not just the Aboriginal people, because you know we had fantastic actors, and they were, they were, you know, reflecting true stories. It wasn't something that I just made up the top of my head. These are historical reenactments. It just sort of it just happened, you know, by accident. I ended up walking through the whole play with the mayor. I was caught up next to her. But I remember her crying and then laughing and crying again, which she actually she actually said in her speech when she came to our closing night party. Um, but it was you know, the actors were just so on on point. They were they were passionate about the you know, the project as well. We had the, the marshals with the parkies, so the marshals were, you know, the, the infamous parkies, um, who were really just all friends of friends of mine and and they would stop, they would make sure that the audience crossed the roads at the, at the safest time. You know, they would stop traffic, they had stop signs, and they had fluoros there. And, um, but they also pointed out sites of significance. So they would, they would assist with that a little bit as well. And the sites of significance were just important. Physical sites, physical, you know, properties and addresses um, where either organisations existed or, or um, you know, the sites, the sites that were important to Aboriginal people at that time, you know, sites of former hotels. And they were so passionate about it. And, you know, they were so empowered. It was the first time I think they'd been given that kind of, you know, fantastic power. And and they took it quite seriously, the, the parties. You just see them, you know, getting right into their roles as well and really, you know, gruffly, gruffly directing the audience to make sure that they were, they were safe and doing the right thing. And it was just a huge swell of emotion. You know, I think it was a huge swell of community pride. And it was really all about our ancestors, you know. So it was really paying homage and honour to our, our ancestors and the people that, you know, created against all hardship the community of Black Detroit. You touched on there, like, you know, it was really emotional and important performances for them because they were telling, you know, stories of truth. And I know that Gary Foley did a lot of the research behind the play. Obviously, 
these are stories that community know and hold and these places of significance that you're talking about are known within the community. But I'm wondering about the importance of turning that research and that knowledge into a play. Some of those stories became sites of significance. So each of those sites of significance could have been a, a sketch. It could have been one of the sketches. I could have written, you know, about that particular site, but there were just too many. But, um, you know, we, we, I guess when I, when I was putting it together and writing it, you know, I was thinking about the fact that it's got it's got to be theatre. You know, we don't want it to turn into too much of a didactic lecture series of lectures about how bad white people are. So it had to be entertaining. And I I've always written humour into my plays. You know, no matter how dire the circumstances, um, I think that it, it helps the audience to engage and 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 really listen and be educated when their minds are more open. And I think their minds are more open when they're they're not scared, but when they're actually engaging and, and often laughing, you know, with us as well sometimes. Because I had to also remember that it was my first promenade play. I'd never written a play that was for a moving audience, you know, moving through the streets of, of a town, the suburb. You might have to turn what normally might be a, a eight-minute scene into three minutes. And so, you, you know, then have to dissect it again and say, OK, what's the, what's the core element of what we're trying to say? about this particular sketch or this particular speech that Doug Nichols made or Margaret Tucker made. Because I, I knew I Margaret Tucker when I was a kid and um, a famous speech that she actually made as a communist. Um, she was the first probably Aboriginal person to join the Communist Party in the 30s, uh, 40s. And um, so that amazing speech, there was, not, there was not one line that I didn't want to include, mm. but it went too long. <laughs> so I just turned a 10-minute speech into three minutes, thing, you know, without, without losing the truth of what she was saying. Or, you know, fabricating anything. Yeah, well, I was wondering, like, you're talking about the parkies as marshals and also those speeches by elders. I was reading in one review that there was um, a speech at Atherton Gardens Estate. I was just wondering if you could talk about maybe a couple of those places. And, yeah, there's obviously there was these difficulties of making it a promenade play, but why that was so important for the play to actually work? Oh, yes, I think, uh, I guess the, the visceral effect of standing, you know, on a piece of history and then listening to someone like one of those elders talk to you about the history and they're still alive. It's a kind of a three-dimensional surreal visceral experience because you're standing on a on a spot, for example, the, when we got um, Sister Bernice Lovers, um, she talked about the, the parkies and how they used to drink in the Atherton Estate, you know, um, and the, all their secret grog hiding spots for when the police came they would have these little compartments in, in, within, the, within the ground um, and put their, put their bottles in there and um, you know when you're standing there and you're listening to her talk and she's touching the same spot that she's talking about that they used to utilise in the 70s and 80s and it's still there and you're standing five feet from it you know and you're, you're connected to her because she's right in front of you and she's telling you a story about something that happened 40 years ago um that whole circular emotional engagement, it's so much stronger than just someone telling you what happened 30 mm. years ago. Um, it's, so, it's so much more tactile and visceral and, you know, special. And, you know, you can see the audience really honoured when, when things like that happened, when people like Denise Lovett told them her story and they're standing on her, her special spot while she's telling them. Uh, and they were very important things, you know. 
Um, even though like some of the scenes, some of the speeches we had, obviously we create different physical locations for them. They, they either weren't in Gertrude Street, like Uncle Doug Nichols Gore Street Church, you know, obviously it's not in Nichols, they're in Gertrude Street. It's a little way down Gore Street. Uh, and, but, you know, the fact that we we sort of took snippets of his speech and we found a little church, I think it's called Little Fitzroy Street, off Gertrude Street, a tiny little church. And so we used the front of that. We got Lionel Austin to play Uncle Doug giving one of his speeches. And, you know, the little church, which is only about 20 metres off Gertrude Street. So, we tried as much as we could to keep everything truthful, but obviously had to, you know, sometimes work about locations. But we put Army Margaret Tucker on the, the first floor balcony of the terrace house in that same street, Little Fitzroy Street, that we, we basically hired um, the space for. And, uh, you know, that was basically her addressing a communist rally, which she actually did. She was the first Aboriginal person to speak at a communist rally as a guest speaker. And it was her rallying cry for communists to support Aboriginal people in their struggle for land rights. But that was, you know, that was this incredible speech. That speech could be known by every school child. Just to watch, you know, as I said, the mayor of the mayor of City of Yarra, she was almost also bursting with pride that this, you know, this was part of her electorate. You know, had this such a rich history of survival. You know, all those things, all those elements were swirling around. You know, the audience. And then you think about the cast and the marshals and, you know, and they're just this incredible environment, you know, but it was very loving. It was no, there was no, what's the word, vindiction. It was, you know, it was all about, this is just what you need to know. You know, it was like telling the child, this is the history of your family. Ours also, you know, these amazing stories of, yeah, resistance, survival, but also stories of displacement and dispossession. Yeah. They're things that keep coming up when, you know, we're looking at the area of Collingwood and Fitzroy. So I was wondering if you could talk about, yeah, these themes and if there are particular scenes in the play that you wanted to describe in relation to those themes too. Well, when, we, when I was engaged as a uh, playwright and we went in and had, you know, I think we only had one or two meetings with... Uh, Kylie and the at the obituary offices, you know that was early days. But what became really obvious was this play is about dispersal. You know, you always have to find a, a through theme. You know, what, what's the point of this play? Otherwise, why bother? You know, the theme of this play is to show Australia willing acts of dispersal imposed upon us constantly since 1788. You know. And it's like one, one minute we had, you know, millions and millions of, of acres of land to, to sort of inhabit and be on. And it just slowly, increment by increment, year by year, it just it was shrinking in front of your eyes. It was like, to me, I just always visualise water on a footpath in a hot summer's day. And it just, you watch, slow, it slowly dries up and it gets to a tiny little puddle and then it just evaporates when it's small enough. And that's, what I, that's how I picture what, what happened to us. In my mind, when I was writing the play, it was always about, you know, constantly it was operating before our eyes, our right to inhabit. And, and so that, that became the theme of the play. And that also then directs what scenes you write and what, what particular historic incidents that you think are important enough to put in the play. 
um, that dictates that as well because you want to show that here's a series of things that shows you how we were constantly dispersed, you know. So like the play starts with, you know, we have people in the fossil skins, the actors, and they are representing the, the different tribes of Victoria, um, as many as we could, you know, there's a limited number of actors. And um, and also the water run, the, you know, the Wurundjeri clan who, who were in, in Melbourne. And and so then they talk about how they were dispersed from their, their land, their surrounding land. The, the, the very next thing you see is the World War One Aboriginal soldier returned from World War One with his Anzac slouch hat on the footpath and he's busting because he's starving um, because, you know, he's come back a hero. He's got medals on his chest, but he's still not a citizen of Australia and no-one will employ an abo. Um, and so he's literally starving on the streets and he's, he's playing the harmonica and he just starts telling you his story. And, you know, one of our actors, uh, Levi Parsons, just that. That was, that was probably 10 or 15 minutes in and people were crying because people started to realise, you know, how come the white war heroes come back and they're celebrated and the black war heroes can't even get a job and they're starving on the street? And, you know, it all points back again. Everything goes back to, you know, dispersal of... And, and the, the, it's the denial of rights, of human rights, you know, as well, um, which goes arm in arm with dispersal. And, and then there was only March Tucker, you know, I think she was one of the, the next things they saw, speaking from the balcony of the terrace house, actually touches on all that dispersal in her speech. You know, and, and how we're, the, we're the rightful owners, but look, look, look what we've got. Look where they've left us. And then we show the the, the black fellows that were involved in two up games, and you know, same with the white white Australians that were too. And the illegal sort of betting that people used to take, and what games that they were playing in the alleyways of Fitzroy behind the pubs, uh, like the Bulls are. And and then how that was dispersed by the police. So it, you know, they could, couldn't get a job. Uh, even when they tried to make money by gambling, they were still dispersed by the police. So, you know, it was like, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to do to make to make enough to eat? Like, what are you going to allow us to do, you know? And, and then all of a sudden, people look at the, the unemployment, which are touched on as well. Australians talk about 5% or 6% unemployment. Yet you go to a country town and it's 50% Aboriginal unemployment in most country towns in Victoria. You know, that's never talked about. And, and um, you know, that, um, that unemployment, that, that then leads people to sometimes lives of crime because they're trying to feed their children. Because you won't let them because you keep dispersing them. So it's always about that, you know. It's like this constant pull and push of our lives and our history. That's what's always happened. And when we push back, we become the criminals and we become more dispersed. And we can't win, you know. It's a, mm. it's a game that we can never, ever win ever until we get a treaty. One of my favourite scenes, two Aboriginal girls, off to women, um, off to catch the train and try and get to Maribyrnong, where the munitions factory was in the World War Two, where they made the munitions for this for Australian, you know, military. Um, and they were working there because their their husbands were, were killed, and they were left widows in Fitzroy. And so they, the only jobs they could get, because white people wouldn't employ them, was the munitions factory, because the munitions factory wouldn't employ anyone. 
but they just put them on an assembly line. So, yeah, all these things, I can go on and on and on, but they're all about dispersal, you know, uh, and denial of human rights. That's what it really is all about. But the, I guess at the end, what's really nice at the end, to really round that home, is we finish the play, they're standing on the corner of Smith Street and Gertrude Street, and Denise Lovett returns again at the end, and she tells them about the Smith Street Traders petition that tried to kick the parkies out of Smith Street because they were they were scaring customers from their pastry shops, etc. And and um, how the you know the parkies were try, uh, trying to explain to the media and to the government that you've left us nowhere else to go, you won't let us in your pubs, we don't have a home, many of us, and this is this is the only way we can congregate and be with each other, which is a cultural thing. Um, and yet now you deny us this the right to stand and meet and talk with each other, you know. And, and that's the very reason why we started to play in the Colton Gardens is because there was a big um, tree, so the big fig tree, um, and, and people would meet Saturdays and take all their kids and they'd have picnics, you know, um, because they weren't allowed into any, any public place. So they would go there winter, spring, summer or, you know, fall, um, and on Saturdays, that would come, you know, many that were working as well. So that would be their one day they could come and catch up with their relations. And the kids would be, there'd be little black kids just running all over the Carlton Garden, you know. And that was a big day of celebration. That was like the Adolf Day, you know. They'd all get together because they're all living in these, these shitty little boarding houses, rat infested, cold, you know, no eating, no aircon, um, rotten floorboards. And so they could get out there on the Saturday and just sort of celebrate. And they also just had their feet on their on their land. Just by starting to play there and explaining that there's a reason why we're under this Morton Bay fig, that, that speaks of dispersal again. And so we, well, I wanted to start it with dispersal and end it with dispersal. And that's why I did it with Denise saying, well, guess what, now it's 2008 and you kicked us out of Smith Street. Yeah, well, just on that, the play was written, I think, in 2006, so um, it was the time of the Commonwealth Games, and I'm not sure if that was important to the writing of the play or not, but those protests that were happening around then, and then it was performed in 2008, about 13 years ago now. I was just wondering if you could maybe reflect on, you know, the changes to the area in those 13 years, and also what a version of the Dirty Mile might be like today? Would there be changes or new things to consider because of things that have happened like yeah, further dispersal, um, further gentrification and things like that? Look, I'm just trying to think of the organisations that, that are still anywhere near you know, Fitzroy. really only got the, the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service which is now in Nicholson Street opposite the Carlton Garden, mm. down a little bit. But, um, you know, it's, it was pretty much you know, which is quite sad, but Around that time that we, we performed the play, from that moment to this to this moment, um, they have you know continued to keep us out. So there's been you know there's been no no one going back in terms of the Aboriginal community or community organisations. In other words, the gentrification, you know, the hipsters and and all their all their good leaning you know good left leaning goodwill that they purport to have, they haven't really you know embraced. Uh, welcome, you know, uh, Aboriginal people, because the parkies are still, you know, um, aren't allowed to drink or sit on, sit, sit where they used to sit and, and have, a, have a sip and, a, and meet up and catch up with each other. Um, that's, you know, now being outlawed, policed as well, like every day. 
Um, I'm sure that all the all the gentrification is fully supportive of that traders association petition that happened you know, 13 years ago or longer. Um, and you know, there's, there's been no signs of anyone welcoming well welcoming Aboriginal people back. I don't think as a community, except for things like the lighting, you know, the projection festival, which happened a couple of weeks ago, which I thought ever since its inception, it's been really respectful. And I think the way that it's conducted itself and the way that it's, it's invited Aboriginal people in, you know, it's invited Aboriginal artists to do projections. I remember the first festival, um, there was a young Aboriginal girl that was one of the projectionists. I, I just, I walk down Yertra Street now and, you know, I, I reminisce and I, I don't feel, you just don't love anymore, you know. Like when I walk down Kirchner Street now, it's like walking down Burke Street in the city. That's how much a sense of community it has now to me. Um, and it's simply because it's become uh, the mecca of making money, you know. Become the mecca of, you know, oh, wow, I've got a restaurant in Smith Street or Gertrude Street, you know, I've got a vegan restaurant, or I've got a craft beer, beer shop in Gertrude Street. How trendy and hipster am I? But, yeah, it's just, to me, it's just a loss. For Aboriginal people, it's lost sense, that sense of welcoming and community that we had. And it's mainly because we're no longer present. You know, as Kutcher said, I think, recently, you know, we, when you stop and listen, you can hear us. But white people don't know how to stop. I wanted to ask when we spoke a few weeks ago that you mentioned your own connection to 3CR and your work as Aboriginal Programs Coordinator um, and you also broadcast at the station with family and also other community members. So I was just wondering if you could talk about how you began at 3CR and uh, some of the works and projects that you did while you were here. So I responded to an ad for a Koori Program Coordinator uh, at 3CR Already I knew that um, my sisters had a program, uh, Lisa and Destiny had a program uh, called Raspberry Aid Brigade, <laughs> um, which they used to do sort of late at night. It was almost like a graveyard shift. Um, and Angelina, my, my younger sister, so there was the three sisters, and they, they did this show. And so I knew that was happening, and I knew that Giller, Gary McGuinness was, was already there as well. So I thought, oh, that's, you know, it's a nice, they're obviously welcoming and inviting, you know, to Aboriginal people. Otherwise, we wouldn't have these people there already. So I went to the job. I got the job. I'm not sure if anyone else applied. <laughs> got the job. There was only that five star and in that little office. And, um, of course, I, sh- I had to do a radio show. And I had no experience of, of, you know, doing a radio show. But I had been a guest at Destiny and Lee's a few times. Um, so I got some panel training. And... Um, but what do I call my show? And I said, oh, um, Koori Survival Show. So I just called it the Koori Survival Show, the top of my head. And, um, yeah, I started broadcasting. But my duty statement was to increase the amount of Aboriginal people doing shows. So my job was to go out and find community members that wanted to do a show, get them trained on the panel, and, you know, um, then be able to produce their own show. 
and invite their own guests. So, you know, do, if they just want to do a music show, just give them a chance to bring in their music and talk about their favourite artists. So it was really to connect through the art to the Aboriginal community. That was, the, that was the call of my job. And I guess that's why I got the job. And um, so I just started trying to recruit people and... Um, Tricia had a recording studio. It would have been the only recording studio in Victoria where Aboriginal people could walk in and want to record a song. And it was free. So um, that, that got a lot of interest. You know, we had people like uh, Archie Roach and Ruby Hunter came in um, and they just they had a band called Kuri Kin Action. And they they came in. I think David Arden was David Arden was with them. And, you know, they just said, oh, we just want to, just want to record a, like a set, a tape whatever we called it in those days, a tape. And um, so, yeah, our, our technician said no problem, and they came out with a, you know, with a little tape of career connection. And that was before he was famous, obviously. So that was another part of my job, was getting, letting people know that these, you know, these opportunities were able to use this recording studio for free, and, and also have a great technician, Greg Siegel. Um, and, yeah, so that was, that was another big part of my job. But also we did some amazing broadcast. The, the bicentennial year happened the year after I started this year. We actually did a simultaneous, I think it was the first ever, I'm pretty sure it was the first ever simultaneous broadcast for R. And Joel Wright, he was doing a similar job to me at 3 R, and also grew up with me. And, and we basically just said, why don't we introduce, why don't we introduce the bicentennial year together through a simultaneous broadcast? Both, both studios agreed, both stations, sorry, 3CR and 3RRR agreed. And we had Archie Roach sing us into 1988, the Bicentennial Year. He was in the 3RRR studio and I was the 3CR studio. And um, that was, to me, that's one of the most uh, incredible broadcasts we did because we did it for hours and hours <laughs> into the early hours of, of 1988 <laughs> and out of 1987. And it was just incredible. I wish someone had that. You know, the songs that we were playing, we had it coming in at 2 a.m., you know, 3 a.m. Um, and, yeah, we we did the first ever broadcast together. Um, that was that was very, very magical. And to have Archie singing live to bring up into the 88 bicentennial year was one of the most incredible experiences to hear him singing on a microphone in a radio station. Um, it was amazing. I was given the opportunity by 3CR to, to go to Sydney for the big march, Um you know, the Bicentennial March, Anti-Bicentennial March in Sydney in 88. And um, that was incredible because I was actually, you know, I, I got a um, free entry and I, um, I, just, I stayed with all the Aboriginal people. We camped at La Perouse, but, but I, was a, I was given airtime on Radio Redson and uh, we did a simultaneous broadcast with PCR and Radio Redson. And I would bring in Aboriginal people who would come down from, you know, Darwin and up from Melbourne because they came from all over Australia. And then I, I was just given, you know, I think an hour at a time uh, to interview people. And, and that was going to 3CR. So that one hour went to 3CR. That was like the 3CR simultaneous broadcast uh, for, you know, the week of the, um, the marches and the things. So that was really, that was really, really special. As the first fleet reenactment draws near, Aboriginal groups across Australia are mobilising for our national protest in Sydney on Australia Day, the 26th of January. 
3CR and 3RRR will be crossing live to Sydney, where Aboriginal broadcasters Johnny Harding and Joel Wright will keep you informed of events as they happen, from Hyde Park to Botany Bay. Bulletins will be given every two hours from 11am to 7pm. Here, black history being made on 3CR, 3RRR. Tuesday the 26th of January. We'll tell it like it really is. From Radio Redfin Live, uh, John Harding from 3CR from Melbourne. We're up here for the long weekend of Guru protests. You've been to La Perouse, you've seen what's happening out there. It's the most, well, in my brief lifetime, it's the most exciting um, Aboriginal get-together I've ever seen in my life. And uh, how would you describe it, Alf, the, the feeling out there at La Perouse? It's incredible, but I mean, I lived a little bit longer than you, but, and it, I tell you what, it, it, it's, it's just really something to see so many, many um, blacks from all over the, in the country together in one place and, and certainly trying to have their voice heard together. There are obviously uh, one or two minor hiccups, but boy, it, it really is something, the, the, the spirit of togetherness and the way that, that people are looking. People from all parts of the country, from all, they do all sorts of different things, mate, all with, with one accord, and that's to make sure that Aboriginal Australia is heard. It's happening sort of as a lead-up to whatever day, Tuesday, isn't it? And uh, I get that it, it will continue for some time. What we have to do is take the opportunity to build on that togetherness. And I guess the other outside broadcast that we did, I did with Robbie Thorpe, and that was the 40th anniversary of the 10th Embassy in Canberra. That was an amazing experience, you know. I interviewed Lyle Munro, who was basically, you know, him and Gary Foley helped start the Aboriginal Legal Service in Redson with a couple of other people. And Lyle's from Moree, and um, he's he's very much revered as you know he, he's he's got the status of a Gary Foley. Well, and um, I had him on, you know, as my guest, sitting in this tent on the Tenebisi lawn, and um, and his interview was incredible. You know, he's still got the fire in the valley, and he's still powerful, powerful speaker. I was I just felt so honoured that I had that little interview spot with him, and you know, it brought me to tears and. Because you basically say nothing's changed, you know, nothing's changed since we set up the legal service in '72. But also that that same that same little little period of 48 hours. That's when Julia Gillard and you know and Tony Abbott turned up, uh, and they were in this little cafe restaurant just around the corner from the tenancy, not knowing that there was you know of us there. And of course, word got out. We all ran to them. People were banging on the, on the glass windows, and uh, they were terrified. You could see their faces. They were terrified. And we, we, we outnumbered the security guards and the police, you know, 20 to 1. And um, she came running out off their shoe. And it was a blue a blue uh, sort of velvety shoe, suede shoe. And um, one of the Aboriginal women grabbed it, and we were going to auction it off. I'm here with Lyle Munro, uh, and he's just come back from... Uh where Tony Abbott, Tony Abbott actually made the statement, and Lyle also led us um, on the march today. We marched uh, all around Canberra, led the police on a merry chase, but uh, didn't expect Mr Abbott to come, look, to come looking for us, did we, Lyle? <laughs> no, no, particularly since he was backed up by um, his comrade in arms, Julie Gillard. They were both over there making disparaging racist uh, remarks about the embassy and saying that the embassy should be pulled down, and I think they will be talking about some form of legislation to pull the embassy down. 
Uh, when we found out about that, um, the embassy just moved on mass over to the coffee shop, coffee shop there next door to the embassy. Most of your mob down there know the area we're talking about, and we surrounded them. Uh, um, the whole hundreds of uh, Aboriginal people from the embassy surrounded the coffee shop and wouldn't let uh, um, either of them out, particularly uh, Tony Abbott. Uh, there was chance there, land rights. This is, uh, you know. All the chants started going up and then people started hitting the window and uh, uh, clapping with anything that they had in their hands and uh, it's a really uh, remarkable sight. It's, a, it's to me spells a re-emergence of the, of the struggle and uh, like we said there today and all those magnificent people spoke and told that incredible history of 40 years ago when four of our young brothers came down here and uh, set a, an umbrella up outside of Parliament House, the old Parliament House. It created a ripple uh, that sent a shockwave, not just a wave, but sent a shockwave through this country. Uh, it jogged the racist conscience in this country. Um, and once more, he, uh, they, they made it possible for Aboriginal Australia to uh, continue to cross over those frontiers. You know, speaking about the Dirty Mile, the play, and these histories of dispossession, there's obviously also stories of resistance that you've talked about, and, you know, 3CR is an important place for community organising and resistance, and then also places like the Tent Embassy in Canberra that you were just speaking about. I was wondering if you wanted to talk about the role of 3CR in these kind of grassroots and community-led movements, and if that, that kind of radio and broadcast, how it's important or how it has been important for the Aboriginal community here. Well, I think it, it goes back... I mean, the reason why people like Gary Ennis-Giller, lovingly you know, referred to, passed away, R.I.P. Giller, um, and, and, you know, Lisa, again, passed away, R.I.P. Lisa, why is it that 3CR attracts the staunchest people in the community? You know, there's got to be a reason for that. It doesn't It doesn't attract the weak, the weak, the weak-willed. It attracts, the, you know, the strong and the ones that want to want to, um, you know, resist, I guess, and oppose, um, you know, the, the laws and the governments of the day that are, that are being unjust. But, you know, 3CR, that's the kind of people 3CR attracts, whether they be Aboriginal, whether they be West Papua, whether they be, you know, whatever, <laughs> from overseas. It's because it allows them uh, elements of self-determination. You know, let them dictate what their show is going to be about and let them dictate who their guests are. You know, um, and it, it lets them um, have, have free will, you know. And also it gives them a voice, a platform that you're not going to get this, these platforms anywhere else, you know, when, when you're seen as, as we are seen, as Aboriginal people are seen as a problem. You know, people don't want the problem on their radio station. Uh, and 3 has always been very much a door open, open door policy, but... I always felt that way. Even when I was working there, I sort of continued that. You know, I literally would have people walking in off the street knowing that I had a job there and saying, oh, I've got an idea, can I have a cuppa? But I said, oh, yeah, just come into the kitchen. And I think that was a very important time, you know, when I was there and after I was there in that late 80s period, the, the connection between Aboriginal people and 3CR. And Gary Foley took my show over for a period of time. And, you know, then it was not long after that, I guess maybe 10 years after that, Robbie Thorpe started his show. Um, you know, there's a reason why staunch people say yes to you. They, can you help me with a 3CR project? You know, it's because that goodwill has, has, has 
and amplified and broadcast through the very people that have worked at 3CR or continue to work at 3CR. You know, they they become the ambassadors. And so people know about 3CR through these ambassadors. And they, they look at these ambassadors and go, wow, if you're there, this mob must be okay, this 3CR mob. Otherwise, you wouldn't be there. And that's what I think. That emanates all people from all races, you know, all communities across the world that have programs and shows at 3CR as well. You know, you, you judge 3CR by who's there. And we find Aboriginal people are no different. You know, they came because people like Gary McGuinness and De- Lisa Valera and Destiny Vegan and, um, and uh, myself and Robbie Thorpe, Gary Foley, you know, because we were there. They felt they could walk through that door and have a cup of tea and say, I've got an idea. Uh, I guess I guess just to encourage young, you know, First Nations people to remember the importance of broadcasting, that, um, you know, all this social media stuff, you know, TikToks and, and Facebooks and all that stuff, that, that, that comes and goes, you know, and broadcasting is so much more important than that because it gives you, gives you a chance to connect with people that you don't know, you know? It gives you a chance to connect with people when you have an important message to share with people that you don't know. And um, the danger of social media is you're just constantly talking to people that agree with you. And I, I think that you know, the importance of, of 3CR is why young, young Aboriginal First Nations people should get involved and support 3CR into the future is because um, it has supported us for 40-odd years. And, and Aboriginal culture is a cyclical culture. So when someone supports you, you have a cultural obligation to support that. And young people, First Nations people, they need to remember that, that you are obligated to support those who have, oblig- who have supported you. And, yeah, and the struggle goes on. That was a conversation I had with Gugu Yelenji, Mariam Mann and playwright John Harding about his play The Dirty Mile and his time working at 3CR in the 1980s. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. You're listening to summer programming on 3CR Community Radio. Over summer, we'll be here with radical radio, including documentaries, special series, highlights from 2021, and much more. For summer grid details, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash summer specials. I think we're going to go to another track now. So, I mean, if you have not already heard, Barca has put out her amazing, uh, I think it's her first album, Black Matriarchy, and here is the title track. 
colonize my black mind and from a dream time I go back taking me to genocide through my tracks they raped our mothers less than my black they bought the violence when they attacked I ain't here to start trouble I'm just here to state facts you can't paint me how you want to paint cracks and I'm tied to my mob got my mob on my back <sighs> waratahs are covered in blood whitewashing our history to cover it up proof is all in the pudding cause this nation couldn't give a fuck about us we survive unseated undivided our people stay fighting cause the flame is ignited we stay righteous we cannot be silenced cause silence is violence the reason we're divided and they choose not to digest the truth instead they just go ahead and delude our youth only like a system cause it just suits you give a fuck about the law yeah i'd rather grass roots black to the bone black to the busy mob on my back yeah they all rock with me back in my blood that river flow through me i'm matriarchy all bloodline 120 this for the black matriarchs this for my sisters who lived in the dark this for my sisters who carry our past on their shoulders this is for black matriarchs this is for all of our women this is for all of our children couldn't care less about the monarch i'ma set fire to the kingdom i'm coming for them more hail to black matriarchs i'm the pain and the proof the history that lays out the truth and they couldn't walk a mile in our shoes tell us to go bush when they all introduce fuck it we've been here for too long matriarchy blood yeah i've been built strong song lines deep yeah got me singing songs because i can't forget where i came from Bakanji country mongo man pass it to my kids tell them this your land i came from the dirt go back in red sand there's a river uncle i'm proud of who i am creator creator me tough and I'm calling out all your bluffs Say in the past, it's all in the past Well that dark past still lives in my mouth I stay radical, I know the truth Couldn't kill my ancestors, I'm the proof I know I still got some screws loose But my third eye's open and I'm looking right through Looking at you, Nunkle right here Gonna do what it do, so my little black seeds Ain't gonna prove shit to you Not just sent me, gone bud, what do? 3% me, hold it down for the few This for the black matriarchs This for my sisters who lived in the dark This for my sisters who carry our past on their shoulders this is for black matriarchs, this is for all of our women, this is for all of our children, couldn't care less about the monarch, I'ma set fire to the kingdom, I'm coming for them, more hell to black matriarchs. You know, I have a culture, I am a cultured person, don't try and suppress me, and don't call me a problem, I have never left my country, I am not the problem. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was Black Matriarchy, the title track of Barker's new album. Um, cannot recommend it highly enough. Absolutely incredible. And so many bangers and also an encouragement to people to watch the music video for Black Matriarchy, which is phenomenal. You're listening to summer programming on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital and streaming on 3cr.org.au. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au.
And now we're going to go to a track. This one's Wave by Moju. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, and that was Wave by Moju. You're listening to summer programming on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR.
Welcome back. You're listening to 3CR. We are now going to be speaking with Sabina, one of the co-founders of the Australian High School Anti-Racism Kit, the first anti-racism toolkit for Australian high school students. So we're really excited to speak to Sabina. Good morning, Sabina. How are you? Hey, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us this morning. Um, really excited to talk about the launch of this tool, um, this kit. It's it's such a beautiful website and kit, and keen to talk a bit more about it. I guess as a starting point, can you tell us a bit more about the anti-racism kit and what was like the motivation or inspiration behind it? Yeah. Okay. So basically, my co-founder Jin Young and I, um, it was around last year when we kind of like looked at a lot of like the anti-racism resources that were available, right? And we noticed that a lot of them were like quite good, but they were still very American, right? Yes. There just isn't like as much for like an Australian context. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, so true. I think a lot of the anti-racism resources are usually based from like America or the UK. And I think something that's really unique about your resource is that it's not only completely designed by people of color like from this from start to finish but it's also like created by students for students which is really unique yeah yeah like that was something that we yeah we noticed as well it was like um for like anti-racism resources right like a lot of them were very like they're very like up in the air and sort of like they didn't feel, like, super tangible, especially, yes. like, as a young person, right? Because it's sort of, like, a lot of, like, current resources, like, they'll talk about, like, why um, anti-racism is important, but they wouldn't really show us, like, you know, how can we actually, like, do something about this within our own communities as young people? Yeah. And I guess, like, within Australia as well, like, a lot of the resources, um, they're, like, a bit, they're a bit old, <laughs> and they focus more on teachers, actually so it's like a lot of like the kinds of activities and like things that they would recommend it's mostly for like teachers to implement within their own classroom Mm. and the resources were like they didn't really focus on like you know um providing young people themselves with what they can do Mm. so yeah i guess like those are sort of like the main things that kind of Mm. motivated us to i guess like yeah work on the anti-racism kit yeah um so spot on and i think like um a lot like anti-racism comes from a very like academic background and it's now Mm, making its way into community and you're right a lot of the time these resources are about like learning about the content or the theory and what's cool about the anti-racism kit is that you're right it gives those tangible actions or tangible resources that students can follow up with rather than it just being like a classroom discussion yeah definitely like a lot of like a lot of like focus is put into like yeah, like, how can we make this, you know, as actionable and accessible yeah. and, like, and digestible as possible for young people? Yeah. And what was it like for you and Jin to, your co-founder, to kind of, um, like, what was the process like to create this kit? Yeah, so, um, the pro- like, working on the kit, we actually started this during lockdown, actually, last Whoa. year. So, um, we were in the middle of year 12 and, you know, lockdown happened and we were like, hey, um, you know, with lockdown, we both have, like, a lot more time on our hands. Um, we can work on this kit. So <laughs> from the start, it was, like, it was definitely, like, a lot of, like, scouring through the internet for resources, reading them, and, you know, sort of, like, synthesizing them, mm. um, yeah, into, like, something that's, like, more accessible. Mm. Um, <laughs> the first iteration of the anti-racism kit was actually just, like, 
a massive Google Doc that would just <laughs> lag because there's just so many pages. And um, yeah, I guess like as we sort of like continue to develop it into 2021, um, mm. there was like a lot of learning as well. Because I guess, like, you know, everyone experiences race differently, right? Like, I'm a Southeast Asian person of color. And I guess, like, on my end, there was definitely, like, a lot of learning, especially as we sort of, like, researched into, like, you know, what other communities of color are experiencing and trying to find ways in which young people can actually, like, help them out Mm. and sort of, like, contribute to, I guess, like, you know, all of their efforts for, um, yeah, like, I guess, like, getting, like what like the community wants I yeah suppose. yeah and, so true yeah no that's sounds... yeah no you go sorry yeah sorry um yeah i just want to add though that um when it came to like creating the kit there was definitely like a lot of like working with other people um you know like getting advice from people who've been doing this kind of work for a longer period of time than um jen mm-hmm. and i have been doing um, you know, getting consultations, um, getting a lot of help with, like, web development and, like, branding. And, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I kind of just want to give a quick shout-out to Hugh because yes. <laughs> they've been so generous, um, yeah, with this kit. And they've really, like, given us, like, a lot of guidance and, like, help with um, the further development of the anti-racism kit. Yes. No, the people at Hugh are incredible and it's really awesome that they were able to kind of mentor you and support you through this journey because – to say that you started off as a Google Doc and seeing the website now, that is a beautiful transformation. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. It's epic. And so can you tell us a bit more about how young people can use this resource? Because it really sounds like it centers on self-reflection as a starting point. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, yeah, so like as a starting point, there's like a lot of emphasis on like, I guess like self-reflection as well as um, I guess like learning about like what racism is, right? So. Yeah. Um, I guess, like, you know, the anti-racism kit, we want it to be accessible to everyone. So, um, you know, it doesn't matter if, you know, you're, like, a passionate high school student who's already been doing, like, a lot of work for um, anti-racism throughout high school, or if you're someone who just isn't, like, familiar with talking about race at all. Like, we want this kit to be something that, you know, any young person, you know, be it, like, an ally or a young person of colour can use. Yeah. And I guess, like, yeah, with the kit, it's divided into three sections. Yeah. So, um, you know, we have the first section, which is called self, which focuses on, like, actions we can take as, like, an individual person. Um, we have a school section, which focuses on what we can do within schools. And then we have, like, a society section, which focuses more on, like, I guess, like, actions we can take in mm-hmm. wider society. And I guess, like, um, you know, if you're using the kit, I guess, like, ideally, you would sort of, like, go through um, each section, but, um, you know, you don't necessarily have to sit down and go through all of the sections. You can yeah. kind of, like, pick the section that you feel is most relevant. Yeah, for sure. I, I really, really liked the school section. Can you tell us a bit more about why it was important for the two of you to create a whole sex- section dedicated towards anti-racism within school? Yeah, um, I guess, like... We wanted to create, like, a dedicated school section because they are really important spaces, right? I mean, yeah. like, young people, we're, we're there for, like, 200 days a year. Yes. And because of that, uh, you know, I feel like a lot of young people, they have a lot of influence within these spaces, mm. but they often, like, underestimate, like, how much of an impact they can actually have on, like, other young people and I guess, like, their whole community um, by, like, working in their schools. And I guess, like, um, 
for like a lot of young people, I suppose, like whenever they want to, I guess like, uh, I guess like, uh, um, move towards social justice, right? I guess like yeah. school's sort of like the first place that we go to because I guess like as a young person, it can be like kind of intimidating to like join like outside organizations, yeah. right? Because sometimes it's like it's full of adults and you're not quite sure if there's like a space for you yes. um, within, um, I guess like, you know, massive like protests or like organizations or campaigns, like, as a young person and yeah I guess like um throughout high school uh Jin and I have sort of been like pretty like involved with like trying to get like um initiatives off the ground and I guess like we know that it can be pretty difficult right because sometimes the school's culture just isn't conducive to these kinds of things or maybe you have to deal with like a lot of like resistant teachers or parents or like school admin and stuff and I guess, like, I feel like those are, like, things that, um, yeah, high school students kind of, like, struggle with. And I guess, like, no one really shows you how to, like, navigate those things yes. um, unless, like, someone older than you actually reaches out and, like, shows you what to do. So I guess, like, yeah, we wanted to at least, like, have some of those, like, um, I guess, like, tips and strategies, like, within the kit yeah. um, in the school section. Yeah. Ah, oh, that, that's so incredible. And you're right, like, it can be quite an isolating experience as we explore this as people of colour, like, especially when we're in high school, um, and to know that there is a bit of a community outside of school that we can tap into that is mm, exclusively yeah. for, like, students of colour is incredible, and it just makes that experience a little bit more, like, less isolating or scary. Yeah. Um, so, no, that's so cool. And it, it's incredible that you and Jin have, like, taken the time during year 12 during a lockdown to kind of create this. <laughs> it's not easy. Um, and I guess for people wanting to get involved or um, just follow along with what you and Jin are doing and what the anti-racism kit is doing, um, yeah, what can people do? Oh, yeah. Um, I guess, like, this is time to, like, plug our Instagram. Yes. So, um <laughs> If you're interested in, I guess, like keeping up with the anti-racism kit and seeing like our like plans for the future, because we plan on, I guess, like uh, creating like a community or a space where people can sort of like organize and sort of like see if there are any like initiatives nearby. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, follow us on our Instagram with anti-racism kits, and um, on our website as well, you can subscribe to our mailing list for updates on, I guess, like yeah, the kit. Nice. And, oh, yeah, as always, um, spread the word about the kit and yes. share it with, you know, people inside and outside of the school community. So, yeah. Completely agree. And, yeah, the, I'd just like to shout out that the website is absolutely incredible and it's so beautifully designed, so user-friendly. And, <laughs> it, yeah, I really love that balance of sharing information but also resources. But thank you so much for joining us today, Sabina. And, yeah, everyone, check it out. It's awesome. <laughs> no, thank you. You've been listening to um, 3CR Community Radio and we were just speaking with Sabina, one of the founders of the Australian High School Anti-Racism Kit. Hey you mob, this virus is hanging around far too long, don't you reckon? Uncle Jack Charles here and I for one would love to be back with community. This just isn't possible without vaccinating our community. You can contact your local ACCO and they can give you the information you need to book you an appointment so you're on your way. Together we can do better. Community, unity, immunity. Hashtag Proud. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter.
I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, and now it's time for another track. One of our favourite albums this year. This is Alice Sky, Stay in Bed.
And just then you heard the track Stay in Bed by Alice Skye. You're listening to summer programming on 3CR Community Radio. Over summer, we'll be here with Radical Radio, including documentaries, special series, highlights from 2021 and much more. For summer grid details, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash summer specials. You're listening to 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. And now joining us on the line is Uncle Bobby Nichols, and he joins us to discuss the Yellenguth app, an audio augmented reality experience that connects people to place and history through geolocated soundscapes and stories told by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Welcome, Uncle Bobby. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. So can you start off by um, telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, my name is Bobby Nichols. Uh, I'm currently on Yorta Yorta Country, which is in Shepparton. But I'm also a traditional owner uh, for Dajar Run, which is in Bendigo, Wajibolik, which is in Ocean Gimbula, and I'm also uh, Barapa Barapa, which is in Terrain, uh, northwest of Victoria. And this morning, um, you are going to be talking a little bit more about the Yellenguth app, and you're also one of the founding members of the Yellenguth Working Group. So can you tell us a little bit more about what this project is and how it started? Yes, not a problem, but I'd like to also just give a current update on the launch of the app. Um, mm-hmm. Yellenguth uh, launched an event with the community and the wider public needed to be, needed to be postponed due to the lockdown. But that has not stopped us. As of the 23rd, uh, 23rd of uh, July, uh, you can preview the uh, app in a few different ways until we can reschedule the launch event and celebrations. Um, what is Yalanga? Uh Is a Wurrung language. Yalanga means yesterday. The Yalanga app is an audio system. Reality experiences that connects people to places, history through geo-located uh, landscapes, sorry, landscapes, and stories told by Aboriginal across that island community in keeping with oral traditions. And to minimise the uh, screen, Yellinger is expressed entirely through sound. The overall premises of Yellinger is guided by the words of elders that we need to go back to to go forward. The first site of Yellinger is in Jerka Street and is an important meeting home to the rights movement where all community-controlled organisations began. Fantastic. And we might play um, a little excerpt now of one of the stories that um, have been collected for Yellinguth. So this is Uncle Archie Roach. Because people came from everywhere. We weren't just one mob, Gunishma, Yorta Yorta. We were from everywhere, but we made up this community and we loved each other, and we were strong together. Didn't matter where we came from. And uh, we were Melbourne Blacks. We were Fitzroy, Curtis Street, Melbourne Blacks. You know, and there's something to be proud of. Um, and so, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the process um, of collecting stories from Aboriginal young people who've been trained in audio recording, interviewing and editing, um, and also some of the stories that elders have shared for the app? Can you talk a little bit about this process? Yes. Um, look, uh, um, firstly, uh, I'd like to uh, say thanks to uh, to the working group, uh, which is Rio Ellis, uh, Denise McGuinness, Colin Hunter, um, Robbie uh, uh, Bundle, 
and including myself, and also Pip and uh, uh, Zoe. Uh, I'd also like to say thanks to Charcoal Lane, <coughs> Charcoal Lane Restaurant, <coughs> pardon me, which, uh, which uh, arranged for our young people, uh, Aboriginal uh, uh, youth, to, uh, to participate in this uh, particular project. And one of the things that uh, I got out of this, as well as uh, the young people, was is that it was like going back to school again. Um, when we first met, we sat in a circle and we introduced ourselves. But one of the things that came out of that, out of that circle of, uh, of talking was that we didn't know that uh, there was a close relate, relationship to, uh, to not only myself, but also to the younger people as well too. Because when I spoke about my uh, family and all that sort of stuff, some of the young ones uh, said, "Oh, geez, my aunt—that's uh, my auntie," and and then, then you know, it was really exciting. But I think one of the things that uh, was important to not only the young people uh, getting this information about the stories of uh, of Gertrude Street Fitzroy was is that they were the first times listening to. Um, People like, uh, you know, Uncle Kutcher and Uncle Jack Charles, uh, just to name a, a couple, the stories in terms of what was life like uh, in Fitzroy uh, to them. Because given that, uh, you know, we're living in the 21st century of today, and to hear the old ones talk about, you know, what it was like to live in Fitzroy, and it wasn't like today. Uh, it was, you know, you'd have um, people living in rooming houses, you know, two and three families uh uh, sharing one room uh, as, as as accommodation, so it was very very uh, uh, intriguing to them as to how we survived. Especially when you look back now, you know some you know 50, 60 years ago, and you look back today as to what Fitzroy looks like today. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you yourself have also worked for many years in community-run organisations such as the Aborigines Advancement League and the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency and the Aboriginal Housing Board of Victoria, yeah. um, which all did start in Fitzroy. Um, that's, yeah. That's, yeah, that's correct. I mean, when we look back, um, you know, like, uh, our Aboriginal organisations have since relocated to other areas of of uh, Melbourne Metropolitan, but most of the organisations like the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency was in um, Brunswick Street, Fitzroy, same as with the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, uh, same as with the Aboriginal Housing Board, uh, which was in Gertrude Street. Um, uh, then you looked at the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, they, uh, they started off, and that's one of the oldest organisations uh, outside of the uh, uh, the and Advancement League, which is in Thornbury, and they were the the meeting points of when Aboriginal people, not only who lived in Melbourne uh, and uh, Fitzroy, but also for people coming from other parts of the, the, the country as well. Because uh, one of the, uh, I suppose, sites that uh, a lot of Aboriginal people gathered was uh, the Builders Arms Hotel in the corner of Gertrude Street and uh, Law Street. And that was a, a meeting place where people socialised people who went there to find, uh, if they came from Sydney or to, from Queensland, uh, you know, South Australia, Western Australia, Tasmania, that was the first place that they'd head to because they knew that if they were looking for someone, someone there would know them. And I remember the uh, the story that uh, Archie Roach 
uh, told us that when he came back from uh, Sydney, uh, he made his way back into um, Melbourne uh, into Fitzroy, and he uh, he was standing outside talking to some Aboriginal people, and um, and this lady walked outside and uh, and she said, "I know you, you're my brother," and that's how. Um, um, Archie found uh, uh, Alma and uh, Myrtle, uh, two of his sisters, who he hadn't seen for you know for years uh, since he was uh, taken away. So, so you know, the stories that we tell, and we, and one of the things that uh, that we like to do is that, that orally we tell our stories, but we've never been a great one for recording or storing the information. So so this is just one way of um, of actually talking about the history of Aboriginal people, but it's also uh, storing the information so that we've got it there for generations to come. Yeah, it's an absolutely incredible project. And now we might play um, some more excerpts from the Ellen Guth app. So we're going to play a segment from Auntie Rio Ellis and also Denise McGuinness. We had nothing else but to fight for our rights. Nowadays, we're sort of given all this game and money. Game and don't have to fight. But I still say, you know, keep that fire in your belly because the fight's not over. I remember working at the health centre. We didn't even have funding, but we still came to work because we knew our mob needed us. And that's what I mean. Community, like, we still had to feed. Like, I was able to feed my kids and, you know, because they just had that community spirit, and you can't beat that, hey? You can't beat community spirit. Yeah, I absolutely agree with Auntie Denise McGuinness. You can't beat community spirit. And some of the stories and soundscapes through the Ellen Guth app are going to take listeners back to pre-colonial times, whilst others will take people through the Black GST protests. Um, or, you know, there's also going to be some stories of intimate personal reflection on family finding, um, like you just described with Uncle uh, Uncle Archie Roach. Um what other stories do you think um, really stood out that came to light during this project? I, I, I think uh, one of the things that really stands out to me is that uh, the the, uh, the elders and the young people talking about... That's you know, all we have what, time for on 3CR like and, Thursday uh, Breakfast this morning. Like Thanks for joining like, us um, and make sure you stay tuned um, to 3CR 855 AM all summer you know, long. The, uh, uh, the um, Alma Thorpe. Uh, the Bruce McGuinnesses, uh, you know, the Stuart Murrays, uh, they were the ones in terms of the trailblazing in terms of ensuring that um, that made, um, you know, Victorians probably one of the uh, proactive people in terms of fighting for human rights uh, for Aboriginal people uh, because without some of them, uh, uh, you know, like uh, I, I, I reflect back on, like, Archie and... Uh, and uh, Jack Charles and all them, like, you know, uh, you look at the Marge Tucker, uh, you know, she was the one that seen how our government or the Protection Board back in those days was uh, taking children away from their parents and whatever like that. So that ends the reasons why the uh, Aboriginal Child Care Agency was, was established uh, because, of, because of that. But it's also in regards to... You know, like, you know, I, I, I see that uh, Victoria was probably one of the front runners in terms of leading political fights uh, for Aboriginal rights. Um, now, for not only for Victoria, but for the whole of Australia, for Aboriginal trusted on the people. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I just can't wait um, for actually for myself to listen to some of this audio from the Yellenguth app. So could you just tell listeners again um, how we can listen? Because I know that there was meant to be a launch um, through the Gertrude Projection Festival, but because of the recent lockdown that had to be postponed. Yes. Look, if you, uh, if you can get down to Fitzroy, you can download the app uh, from the App Store and Google and and uh, you need to be in, uh, at Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, to use the app. If it's tricky to get to Fitzroy, follow Yellenship on Facebook and Instagram. We're releasing sneak uh, peeks of the app, beautiful stories, poems, songs, and doing some live feeds from Gertrude Street until the, the reschedule of the public launch event. So basically, uh, on, you can go to our website, www. Yellingjuke.com.au or Facebook uh, slash uh, Yellingjuke or Instagram uh, at Yellingjuke. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much, Uncle Bobby Nichols, for joining us this morning to speak about the Yellinguth app. And I think we're going to leave listeners with a poem recited by John Harding um, called Auntie Gertie. So thanks so much. Thank you very much. I heard an ABC TV reporter describe my hood as having a Chicago-like atmosphere when I was younger. What does that even mean? What does it conjure this comment that comes from a place of fear? This man in his bad 80s suit had never witnessed what I have seen play out. Thus his news bite to sum up the result of 100,000 years of love. A fear bite to diss us an attempt to soil the linen of our souls. Let me take you down Gertrude Street, my Auntie Gertie. Come on this annual stroll with me. I will show you markers from years before and new ones that will stand forevermore. Bring your ears that you may hear the laughter of the Koori children as they played and ran down the alleys off Dirty Gertie, Auntie Gertie, with those of the migrants who made your shoes in the Preston factories. Their children babysat by my mother for no payment in that three-storey Gore Street boarding house of love. Fruit and bread was donated by the greengrocer in Smith Street of Auntie Gertie to keep those Koori kids and migrant kids strong as they ran up and down the alleys of Gertrude Street, their Auntie Gertie. Let me take your white eyes further back as khaki uniforms of wannabe soldiers arrived from Condo and Cummer and Tyres with their young wives in George Street off Auntie Gertie. The gumleaf bands mixing with the bookies who ran up and down the alleys off Auntie Gertie. Let me take you for a walk down Brunswick Street, upon which road the Curries would walk to Melbourne East, supporting the kind communists who would gladly resign and strike and die for them to sway a country toward their dark brethren. Those same brethren, daily stolen from Auntie Gertie, locked up in Pentridge for their so-called misdemeanours, whose anxieties inside were sated, reminiscing while staring at Elliot Ronald Bull's mural on the bluestone of Pentridge, a stolen gen man from Gunai Kurnai and Wamba Wamba. Let me take you to the jukeboxes ringing out, the commotion and song supplying fuel for the many interracial forbidden loves, their boots and heels dancing and drowning out the cheers and the whoops and the hollers of the Koori families and the white families' eager encouragement. 
Now let's hook down here off Dirty Gertie and I will show you a church but by veneer alone. Uncle Doug had built a house of love, a temple of pride that shone and lit up the suburb in which it sat, rays emanating and reaching black warriors and entertainers from across the world, where Jesus and Justice had the same father and these sons ran up and down the alleys of Auntie Gertie. Now let's sit where the uncle sat in Charcoal Lane and taught the stolen gens to find their mums and dads as they returned like homing pigeons to sucker on the breast of their community to come and sit in the lap of Auntie Gertie. Let me show you the place the shields were made, designed by my people from north to south, to give us a voice, to give us a mouth, to enable us to speak on law and health and housing and childcare and universities and welfare and education and what's right and fair. Almighty monoliths were built here in Artie Gertie. Let me watch you, white man, as I show you how Mangrook was played by its creators in their woolen, red, black and gold jumpers washed with love, who plotted and planned their games up and down in the orgs and the pubs and the parks protected by Auntie Gertie. Unbeatable warriors forged in love who knew hate was a wasted energy and whose skills made the leather sing. Then let me take you back to the years of drugs in Auntie Gertie upon which you now stand with your microphone in your hand. For you now witness the battle-weary few who have turned for a crutch, no shame in that. They hurt nobody but themselves and are surrounded by a hundred thousand years of love, waiting for them to turn and see. They stay in Auntie Gertie for they know that they are safe for now. Now put down your microphone and do not speak of my Auntie Gertie again. You need to turn your head outwards, away from us and at your own as they wait for you to turn and see what I have already shown. You play act lovers' children, while us see ours as grown. And just then we heard John Harding reading his poem, Auntie Gertie, which is featured on the Yellenguth app. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. That's all we have time for on 3CR Thursday Breakfast this morning. Thanks for joining us and make sure you stay tuned to 3CR 855am all summer long. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.